less supply is moving, uh, more supply is leaving exchanges. I mean, you point out another stat of market makers having you know higher levels of supply at the moment. It's all playing at the narrative of like, the space really doesn't appear to be dead. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey, good morning, guys. How are you? Doing well. Good. It's nice to see you guys. I know Ryan's away, but uh, I, I was out of the office for a couple of weeks, so uh, got to listen to a couple of the episodes you guys did. So glad you uh, glad you were able to keep things rolling. Jason, welcome back. I almost imagine you coming back wearing a stylish striped t-shirt with a French mustache. I don't know, <laughs> eat, eating a baguette. How was your, how was your um, trip in Paris and Switzerland? Uh, it, it was great. It's funny you say that. I, I've had more chocolate croissants than any human should over the past few <laughs> weeks, but uh, they're all great. Uh, definitely enjoyed some some fresh baguettes, uh, some good French wine. Uh, but I have to tell you, Switzerland is is amazing. So spent some time uh, in Zurich and then Grindelwald and Zermatt, which is up uh, on the uh, Italian side of the Alps, and then uh, took a train down to Paris for a few days. So. It was a trip that we'd put off since April 2020, but uh, really uh, kind of a magical experience. Like we, we literally spent the summer solstice on the top of a glacier with like minus 40 degrees and whipping winds and you know only able to stay outside for a few minutes. Um, took a gondola that has a glass bottom. So as you're going over the glacier, you get to see everything below you wow. and really test uh, whether or not you, you have any concerns, which uh, we didn't. But my kids laid on the glass floor and threw their arms around and fake yelled like they were falling just to be uh, goofballs. But That sounds like my nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get a chance to go to Zug in Switzerland? So Zug is like the crypto city where even if you want to rent uh, bikes, like hourly bikes, you can use a MetaMask wallet. Uh, a lot of the stuff can be done uh, using your wallet. Yeah, so I'm familiar with it, but we we didn't end up there. Um, we spent a couple of days in, in Zurich when we first got there, and I was on the lookout for any signage around Bitcoin or crypto. And I, I took a few pictures of different uh, stores that were marketing what they had available, or they were taking payments uh, or wallet providers. But I have to tell you guys, we we were in uh, we were walking around Zurich, and there's a, a river that connects to Lake Zurich called the Limont River. It is probably one of the cleanest rivers I've ever seen in my life. So we're walking along, looking down, see the bottom, see all these fish in there. Um, and as we were coming back to our hotel one night, there were a bunch of people just hanging out with a party on the bridge. So everybody's uh, jumping off the bridge, swimming the river. And my kids were like, hey, can we? So we're like, ah, I don't know. I'm like, all right, sure. What the hell? So we wound up going, jumping off the bridge in the river. And then people were slacklining from one bridge to another gate and it was just a, a really cool atmosphere. Like in, in Europe in the afternoon, like it seems in the cities, people just congregate down in the rivers to try and cool off. And 
everybody's having a picnic. It's a, it's a really good lifestyle. We we should definitely learn a little bit more from here in the states. I feel like I feel like you've covered so much European regulation in the past that <laughs> did that prompt you to go to Europe. This was a, a planned trip for uh, back, like I said, back in 2020, but. Uh, we had to wait for things to clear up on the COVID front and then align schedules because not everybody's in the same school anymore. So, but it was, it was awesome. I, I really recommend it. Um, did some things like uh, riding carts down a mountain and just, you know, checking out your speed and uh, people were paragliding above us, uh, which was awesome. So I definitely recommend uh, if you have a chance, um, I know it's uncommon, but uh, little Alpine towns like uh, Grindelwald and Zermatt just magical places while you were uh on vacation parth did you did you try anything uh were you messing around <laughs> in the crypto world i know you were <laughs> so so i want to be topical because i know last week was uh, the introduction of threads and uh threads has gotten gotten significant traction they have close to 100 million users in the last five days and so uh speaking of social media i am a huge proponent of decentralized social media or or lens so for the last week I tried section, I want to talk about this feature on Lens called Collect, right? So, so some of you may know this, but Lens is a, is a decentralized social media protocol, which was launched about a year ago and it's seen remarkable growth. So it has close to 120,000 profiles with more than 85% engagement. And that's kind of huge, right? Uh, and this is still when it's in, it's in beta mode, it's still a walled garden. But uh, the feature that I want to highlight more is called Collect. And when you typically think about Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, you think about different features like comments, follows, likes, uh, repost. And so the innovation on Lens is that outside of these four features, you have something called as Collect. So the whole idea of Collect is that you can collect a post, which means that you are minting an NFT uh, and putting it in your wallet, right? So the idea of collect is if I'm a content creator, I can choose if I want my audience to pay for collecting my posts. How do I prove that I'm a super fan of a podcast or how do I prove that I'm a fan of the crypto brief? And so collect is kind of your on-chain footprint where you can, you can pay to the content creator uh, based on how much you like them. So just to give you an example, if I upload a short video on LensTube, which is a which is kind of like YouTube but on Lens, I can say, hey, only my followers can collect, and each post is worth fifty cents, right? And that's one way of monetizing um, your your posts. So d does that make sense? Do you think this is because uh, it's kind of a new feature altogether, which is not seen in the traditional social media applications? Yeah, it, I mean, it definitely does to me. I mean, we we see like part of the pitch of Web three is around the idea of ownership and being able to own content and have monetization be more, you know, sort of peer to peer or direct. And we're seeing at the moment, large conglomerates battle uh, around, you know, right now it's Twitter and Facebook. Um, next month, it'll be something different. And now you have startup platforms like Lens, for instance, that are mm -hmm. trying to kind of directly monetize, which makes sense. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it does make sense to me as well, because when you think about social media like TikTok or Instagram, if you become viral, you don't get paid money to get viral, right? You rely on these big brands, big companies to sponsor you for advertisements in the hope that you are, since you are viral, they're hoping that you have enough eyeballs 
to to help with their advertisement. But on Lens, it's more direct, right? So I can directly monetize these posts, uh, and I don't have to be dependent on a separate uh, separate brand. And and most of these collects are like pretty cheap. So it's like fifty cents for a post. But if you scale that, and in case something gets really viral, then that's a significant amount to the content creator. It, it definitely is. But you guys know me. I, I was joking before that my idea of social media should be like a bar, a beer, and maybe a band. But I will admit, I actually participated in my first TikTok while I was on vacation. And like, when you think about the number of hits that people get, and I'm watching uh, some family members play around with it, and the efforts that people put into it, they put a lot of time in. So for the ability to get uh, some compensation, I could see it really taking off. Um, Parth, you may have mentioned in the beginning, but I wanted to ask, in terms of payments, what are the options for making a payment on Lens? Is it just ETH? Are there multiple different cryptos or how does that work? It's ETH and Polygon right now. So Lens is all fully built on Polygon and you could choose between Matic or ETH. Uh, and that's actually a really good point because uh, there is one popular application which I use called sound.xyz. So it's it's exactly like Apple Music. It looks exactly like Apple Music or Spotify. And uh, it's actually kind of closer to SoundCloud. Have you guys heard of SoundCloud? Do you know sure. what that is? So so SoundCloud is kind of meant for more low-key artists uh, before they become popular. And so sound.xyz is similar where you have the collect feature and you have musicians where you can monetize, they can monetize their songs using sound.xyz, right? Or if, if I decide to curate a playlist, I can collect that playlist and monetize that playlist uh, if people want to listen to my playlist. So that's kind of the idea. The one thing for me where I get held up on uh, the idea of like things like Lens direct monetization is on like the traditional app side that we have today that's centralized, I'm not paying to use the service, even though in reality, like if a product is free, you are the product is like the saying or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. uh, it's too good to be true, right? And you are monetized and through the advertisers. Um, I don't know if this is a model that's trying to be worked through or not of could there be like uh, an ability for you to direct the monetization of those ads if ads still exist towards the creators that you're using rather than the platform, as opposed to me having to actively pay more than, you know, the free service that I'm already using if, if what I'm saying kind of makes sense. Cause to yeah. me, that seems like it's a sticky, like a stickiness of free versus having to pay for something, even though the pro the end product might be better, the network effects of something that already exists, like might, prevent something that is a better product from getting off the ground. Yeah. And I think the entire monetization play comes with collect where it's more customizable. So I can choose to show my posts to a specific audience. So if I have an advertiser uh, paying me for a specific audience, I can decide to post for them. And so you have, or I can decide to post for a short duration. So you have those kind of customizations, but I, I don't think we've seen a lot of advertisements on, on Lens so far. It's a pretty interesting concepts. Um, well, that, that's great. Let's, let's, uh, let's pivot and talk about a, a few stories. So maybe we'll start out covering a little bit around the Bitcoin supply, uh, and then dive into a Canadian asset manager that just announced they're integrating staking into, uh, into a couple of their funds. And then maybe we'll, we'll wrap up with a little discussion around what we're seeing out of, uh, out of circle. So, um, Jack, I'm going to ask you uh, out of the gate, 
uh, Bitcoin supply, what, what's going on? It seems like there's a, a lot of supply on trading desks, but um, it seems that there's still a lot more people hodling. Yeah, exactly. So when whenever I like we tend to think of Bitcoin, it's a, an alternative monetary system, um, an alternative monetary asset. And if we think about what are the, the properties or utilities that come from Bitcoin on its base layer? I mean, it's ultimately if you're going to be a money, you can kind of fulfill three different things. You can try to be a store of value asset. Uh, you can function as a medium of exchange, right, to swap for, you know, your money for goods and services uh, and you can be a unit of account right where you start to think about things in the united states of course we think about things in dollars um you could start to think about things in terms of bitcoin or satoshis that's the furthest piece out right the unit of account piece uh, in the medium of exchange piece while it does fulfill functions um across the globe when we think of places that aren't as financialized in developed countries like the united states there's less of a use case and so transacting on bitcoin uh, when I, I have a, a perfectly fine payment system uh, doesn't isn't really the core value proposition, at least today for Bitcoin and, and crypto, I would argue largely uh, within your own domestic economy. Certainly foreign remittances, um, there's inefficiencies there that it can solve for and it is at the moment. Um, but the, the first layer of potential you know, store of value or aspirational store of value asset is something that we could dig into and then we could start to look at the data on chain uh, and see what it says. And for Bitcoin, we're seeing less liquidity of tokens, which is something you would expect to see if people are buying and holding kind of irrespective of price. And we're seeing that take place yet again in this bear market over the past year to the point where uh, Bitcoin's setting new all-time highs uh, in terms of supply that has not moved in the past year. So nearly 70% of supply, which is an all-time high, hasn't moved in the past year. Uh, and then at the same time, we're also seeing a reduction in Bitcoin that is uh, estimated to be on exchanges. So it's not perfect. Some of it is wallets that are disclosed by the exchanges themselves. Some of it is some machine learning algorithms. Um, but if we look at Glassnode data, Coinmetrics data, a lot of the data sort of lines up and tells a similar story, which is exchange balances continue to slowly drop over time to the point where they're at their lowest point in the past five years. Uh, so you have to go back to, I think, early 2018, which was the peak of the 2017-2018 bubble, January, uh, was the last time you had uh, the total supply of, of Bitcoin at the moment, uh, just under 2.3 million Bitcoin on exchanges. And, and Jack, can you just differentiate for the listeners uh, exchanges versus over-the-counter trading? Yeah. So, I mean, if, if we think of um, exchanges, we're talking about you know, Coinbase, Binance, Bitfinex, like all of the offshore uh, or domestic U.S. exchanges um, that, you know, that allow individuals to, to trade their assets directly on that exchange uh, versus uh, over the counter trades uh, taking place through, you know, large block trades from from market makers. I mean, Jason, maybe you have more to layer on there, but. Yeah, well, I, the reason I asked is I was reading a report over the weekend called uh, the Bitcoin Monthly, uh, the June edition, which is produced by, I believe it's ARK Invest. And they were um, taking a, a position or, or suggesting that perhaps um, institutional holdings of Bitcoin are increasing because they see uh, the all-time high of, of Bitcoin being held on OTC trading desks which they, they are viewing and or interpreting as a proxy saying that institutions are holding Bitcoin. So what I found interesting from that report is it was suggesting that 
that number of approximately 8,000 Bitcoin uh, on the OTC desks is up about 60% this quarter. So uh, although it's coming off of exchanges, there, there seems to be some volume in, um, in the OTC space. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of the data that we're seeing on chain, I feel like this story, right, less, less supply is moving, uh, more supply is leaving exchanges. I mean, you point out another stat of market makers having you know, higher levels of supply at the moment. It's all playing at the narrative of like, the space really doesn't appear to be dead. It's just, you have things, again, we, I feel like we talked about it last week, churning underneath the surface during a bear market, um, but there, there's healthy signs like on chain. Uh, and there yeah. are lessons being learned, i.e. assets leaving exchanges. You would expect to see that coming off of a year where all of the lending and rehypothecating uh, that didn't work out and those businesses that no longer exist and people that you know, lost a lot of money along the way, at least at the moment, it, it seems like maybe you know, some people seem to be showing signs of you know, kind of learning lessons from tragedy. Jack, another interesting perspective is that the, the liquid supply or the circulating supply is also decreasing every four years due to uh, the Bitcoin happening, which is slated to happen next year in April. So the steepness of the curve of the circulating supply is almost, it's, it's going to go horizontal at some point of time. How, how is that priced in? What, what do you think about uh, that in correlation to the illiquid uh, uh, wallet addresses you have in Bitcoin? Yeah, so I mean, we're starting to get to the point where you know, after this halving will be sub 1% in, in issuance rate on an annualized basis for Bitcoin, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so it starts to get like, it's diminishing, of course, every four years. And so from 2024 to 2028, you're only going to have a 4% increase in total supply over that time period. And at the moment, you've had sort of what appears to be on chain accumulation of these tokens by a subset of investors that are largely like appear to be agnostic around price or viewing the sell off as a buying opportunity to hold longer term. And if you look at the the data, I tweeted it out on, on my Twitter recently of the illiquid uh, supply curve, you'll notice that the the number of illiquid coins, like coins that haven't moved in the past year, tends to increase during bear markets, right? Because you have accumulation taking place. And we're seeing that yet again at the moment. And as Parth pointed out, I mean, we have over 90% of all Bitcoin that have ever existed have been issued. We'll be north of 95% by the 2028 halving. So almost the entire supply that'll have been issued Meanwhile, only you know 30% of the supply is actively moving. The corrective factor there is ultimately price, because if price moves up, you get profit taking, right? So if we continue to see the the supply that doesn't move continue to accumulate, which could be you know you could be at three quarters of supply by the end of the year if you look at uh, coins that haven't moved in the last six months that would move into the one year inactive pile, um, and so then you're talking a a quarter of supply um, that is setting the marginal price. At some point, illiquid becomes liquid, but you need profits on chain in order for those coins to then move. So price is kind of the corrective factor ultimately over time if demand continues. And Jack, last week we saw a one-year high in Bitcoin price, right? It touched 31,000, I think, around July 3rd. So uh, yeah, yeah, yep. And now we're, we're holding above 30,000 at the time of the recording. So. Um, yeah, I so I I do think and, and there's so much in the short term around macro that is 
A, unpredictable, but B, is going to be very important to the short-term direction of where Bitcoin goes as we head into the second half of this year. Obviously, we've seen equity indices, uh, especially tech-heavy, do really well in the first half. Uh, not a lot of breath to to sort of the performance there where it was really, you know, sort of the largest names in the market cap weighted index that were driving those indices higher. Now we'll see if if maybe there is more breath in the second half or you know, what ends up happening uh, to risk markets more broadly. I do think really matters to where Bitcoin breaks in the second half. But at the moment in this you know specific point in time, we've traded in a two to three. 3% range for the past almost month now. Um, since I think June 22nd is when uh, we sort of broke 30,000. And now we're trading between 30 and 31,000 for you know, coming up to a month if we were here for another week or two. Um, and so then at, at some point that volatility will break. And I think the breaking of that volatility will matter to the second half a lot. So do we break upwards and set new highs on the year, uh, 35,000 and above? Well, that's a new range. Or do we break back down below 30,000 back into the 25,000 range? I think if the macro headwinds show up in the second half, it wouldn't be too surprising to see that. But all of this is in the same context as we've seen in prior cycles. Right. History doesn't always repeat itself. It often rhymes. It's not a predictor of the future, but we've historically seen one year bear markets that are extreme. We got the 75 percent drawdown from November 21 to November 22 that ended in ultimately FTX. Um, and, and now we've sort of chopped upwards and sideways. Right. We're still 50 percent from the all time high. Historically, in the past two cycles, you continue to chop around for, you know, through the end of this year and then into your having of the next year. It's not a prediction for the future, but it does give us, you know, kind of a framework to maybe think about a, a base case scenario. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that this quiet accumulation or this undercurrent demand uh, has been happening in spite of the, the different regulation policies that we have seen in the U.S. And maybe that's a good segue to the second story that we should cover, which is outside the U.S. Uh, Jason, do you want to talk about the uh, ETH staking ETF? I, I will definitely do that. And I think, you know, to the, sort of using that transition, I think Bitcoin is one digital asset where there is pretty decent regulatory clarity in the U.S. It is viewed as a commodity. It has been um, identified as such for a number of years now. And I think that's why we're seeing um, some, uh, some additional product development. I mean, there was a lot of discussion over the past couple of weeks around spot Bitcoin ETFs and um, trying to address some of the concerns the SEC raised. But when you when you look to our northern neighbor, Canada, Canadian asset managers have brought forward digital asset products for uh, for a while now. And what we saw over the past couple of weeks was a digital asset manager called 3IQ uh, announced that they were going to bring in Ethereum staking to two of their fund products. So they, they run two products called uh, one is the Ether Fund and the other, I believe, is called the 3IQ Ether ETF. And these two products trade on the Toronto Stock Exchange um, and have been uh, one of the funds was a closed end fund, so offering limited liquidity. But uh, and just again, for some context here, uh, as of July 5th, the market cap of the ETF was about twenty two and a half million dollars. Uh, U.S. dollars and the Ether Fund was roughly around 136 million USD. Um, so, what's really changing is that they had announced um, some additional liquidity offering, and shortly after that additional liquidity uh, announcement, they came forward in late June and said that they would offer staking as an option. So, I, I wanted to understand what does that really mean. 
Um, and from what I've been able to gather from press releases is that around August 28th, they plan on enabling staking of Ethereum through their custodian, which is Coinbase Custody. And they're expected to leverage uh, Coinbase's institutional infrastructure to facilitate the staking. Now, obviously, there's there's a bonding and unbonding period associated with staking Ether. So uh, they, the funds will be subject to that, which makes me believe it's likely that they will uh, stake some proportion, but not the total holdings of a fund so that they can maintain any necessary liquidity. But what they're what they're saying is they expect to see a yield enhancement for their unit fund holders. Uh, now, whether or not that translates to to um, to fiat increase in NAV, it remains to be seen. What they're saying is they're taking the the base asset of the fund, the base investment Ethereum, and they're going to make that a productive asset within the funds, and they're going to reinvest the rewards from any uh, staking return that they receive. So. I thought it was interesting. Uh, they're they're coming forward with this now. Obviously, Shanghai and Capella uh, were predecessors uh, in terms of the critical path, so they've cleared that. Uh, they think they've got some additional liquidity, and they they noted that in their uh, filings that they will be paying uh, Coinbase uh, custody for the service, but that they also may end up seeing that Coinbase custody pays third parties who are acting as validators. So. Seems to me that they, they might not only be using uh, infrastructure provided directly by their custodian, but there may be uh, sub arrangements that are part of this. But I, I think it's going to be interesting. There, there's no minimum or maximum amount listed currently for staking of the funds. But it's another example where a Canadian exchange traded product is taking steps faster than what we're seeing in the US. So. Jason, the, the first Bitcoin ETF in Canada was years ago, was in 2021. And it's almost like you are seeing them transition over to the second generation of financial products, right? So do you feel like the, the regulatory differences between the US and Canada are just giving a, a competitive advantage to Canada? Is that um, what's happening? So, I, I well, first off, I, I believe it may be the very same asset manager who brought that first Bitcoin ETP forward. Um, I, we could sanity check that, but I, I did read that in a headline, but of course I'd want to compare that to other headlines that I'd read. Uh, but I think on the surface, it seems like there's easier access. And again, I should state that these funds are not available to US investors. They're available to Canadian investors. So I, I think it's reasonable to interpret that as saying that um, there is a competitive advantage for those uh, asset managers in Canada and arguably more expensive opportunity for Canadian investors to get the exposure without the complexity of holding the underlying asset in a self-custody wallet. Uh, the one piece of uh, additional color or, or comment that I'll add here, because I think you guys covered this uh, really well, it makes sense as a yield-bearing asset to, if you can, offer it as a yield-bearing asset. Uh, the one thing for ETH that sticks out for me that that isn't the case for Bitcoin is it's a proof-of-stake asset, and so the more of those tokens uh, that are held by any one entity, you know, technically speaking, the more governance they have over the network. Um, do you see any uh, eventual centralization issues? Let's just take a hypothetical: if if these funds existed across a bunch of jurisdictions. Um, you could have large honeypots held by central entities. 
I don't know. To me, that's just something that kind of sticks out as like a potential issue around decentralization for Ethereum. The OPSEC of these custodians has to be really spot on. I, I would say that um, the press release did note that Coinbase custody was delegating ETH that's held in cold wallets uh, for the fund. So I think that to your point, Parth, um, security, operational security is paramount. Uh, but Jack, I think when you get into questions around centralization, it it's it's hard to predict, right? You know, when you think about the validators themselves, well, are they going to have a large number of validators in their operation? What tools might they use or how do they um, protect and support the uh, redundancy and resiliency of their operations? What type of MEV integration might they have? Uh, what's their geographic distribution? So I think there's legal entity concentration, then there's there's operational concentrations that they're they're working to manage. Yeah, and I guess I guess you could say you know with it being an ETF, it's no different than if you went to an exchange or staking provider that was centralized and delegated your your stake right yeah it's just yeah. it's just like if an etf became very large that offered staking just sticks out to me as one of those you know potential concerns going yeah. forward that's a good segue because speaking of centralized services let's let's talk about circle so uh so circle has kind of been making a few big moves in the last month and a half two months and uh initially circles strategy has been to go as wide as possible so go as broad as possible for usdc distribution and so the idea was to get USDC in as many blockchains as possible, and it's been doing that uh, relatively successfully. But recently, they launched a new product called Wallet as a Service, which is similar to what Coinbase announced uh, in a, a few months ago, where third-party companies or applications can build customizable wallets within their own apps. And what do they end up using by default? USDC, right? So it's it's kind of an interesting play here, as uh, in my opinion. Circle is kind of priming itself to be in a good spot to compete with other payment providers in the future, right? So one story which we did not cover fully uh, was that they also launched on Arbitrum and other L2s uh, using something called as CCTP or cross-chain transfer protocol. And this may seem like, hey, it's another blockchain that has USDC, but to really appreciate what Circle has done uh, and the technology requires more, more digging in, right? So maybe... Let's take a step back. Let's go to 2022, where we had close to 1.3 billion assets which were stolen in bridge hacks. Re remember how we used to talk about bridge hacks left and right, and that used to be kind of the, the biggest stories. I actually do not think that you will see a lot of these bridge hacks in the next bull cycle, right? And so that's that scenario is really changing. So Circle is kind of changing the way you bridge tokens. And so right now, the current state of most bridges is that you have a mechanism called lock and mint or burn and mint. And those you have third party validations by uh, done on the bridge. So it's almost like the, the best analogy. And I know Jason kind of gives good analogies, but the analogy that I was thinking of is uh, when you go bowling, right? So the process of when you go bowling is that you have to deposit your shoes and you get bowling shoes and then you bowl for a while and then you have to return your bowling shoes back to the bowling alley and then you get your original shoes out. So that's kind of, so those bowling shoes are kind of your bridged assets whenever you go to a different blockchain. The the only problem is if you have really expensive Jordans, the, the bowling alley might have <laughs> malicious intent to keep your, your, your shoes, right? And so what Circle is doing is that you don't have to lock assets anymore. 
So if I want to port my USDC from ETH to Arbitrum, my USDC gets burned on the source chain and Circle will witness this burn, this burn event and provide an attestation that JSON's USDC was burned on Ethereum and now he can mint new USDC on Arbitrum. So it's kind of a, a big technology level up, uh, but it's also going to make sure that you have more stable bridges with minimal hacks. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense from the bridging uh, concept and Parth, we were talking about it before, in particular with you know, a launch on Arbitrum and Optimism, I think you said, being able to get funds from optimistic L2s back to you know, base layer ETH or wherever you want to go without a waiting period, which typically you have, this is called the challenge period of seven days. Right. Because optimistic rollups, you know, we don't have to go through it all. We've talked about it before, uh, but you could more basically instantaneously uh, use the bridge, assuming that you're not doing something illicit and be able to port your funds from, uh, from an L2 that's optimistic back to base layer ETH. To me, that's a big win for optimistic L2s. And that's actually one of the many benefits, right? So the, the whole idea is that now I can, I don't have my capital stuck in a bridge smart contract, whether it's Optimism, Arbitrum, or any sort of third-party bridge. So if you go to l2b.com, you can actually see which bridges are validated by third parties. So these are kind of like, not exactly honeypots, but these are this is all the money that's stored in smart contracts. Whereas you see other uh, bridges which are directly on the destination chain validated by Ethereum or the destination chain. So that's uh, this is something worth uh, looking at. So when I think about this type of model, I, and we've been watching this for uh, unfold for a bit now, it reminds me a lot about um, transfer agency in the securities market or uh, depository registrations. If you have it, think about an equity, and that equity might settle in um, at a number of different exchanges around the world. Um, if it's duly listed or multi-listed, as we say, you need to ensure that you relocate that asset to the depository where you want to settle it, which is in this case, a depository is essentially like a chains, but there is a record keeper for that. And it, it seems that uh, Circle has been uh, addressing that particular challenge by having this uh, cross-chain transfer protocol, which yep. uh, it I think it can help quite a bit in terms of um, providing confidence that there's not an, that there are ways to mitigate inflation of supply. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I know we've been talking about this in the past, but we've always wondered if the future is multi-chain or omni-chain. And I think it kind of largely depends on the state of these bridges. And Circle is definitely stepping up um, on stablecoin bridges. And so I think clearly for them, they might think that it's it's more of a multi-chain world in the future. But uh, it's good to know that uh, it's it's good to see these kind of developments. I, I think it's interesting that you put it that way. And I, I do think the multi-chain is, is a clear strategy for them. But even as they continue to, to push out with this innovation, I decided to take a quick look at the supply over the past year. And it, it seems to me, um, looking at DeFi Llama and looking at the block crypto, that the supply of USDC in circulation is down over the past year from roughly 47 billion to about 27 billion now. So, um, you know, it, when you think about uh, building in a winter, I, I think that shows that they're continuing to build even if uh, the current supply is down. Yield differential, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, mar it's market forces. It's a great summary, Jack. Especially when you have a treasury, I think two-year treasury is yielding uh, 
well over four and we get 10 years around four right now. So, yeah. Well, this is a great conversation. I, I realize we've gone a little bit uh, longer than we often do. So I just want to take time. Thank you guys. Uh, it's been great to reconnect. Uh, definitely. It was great to get out of the office too, but I'm glad you guys are staying on top of things and helping to educate us all. Have a great week. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023. FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.